0: Hello, everyone. My name is Richard, and I am the worship leader at Journey Community Church in Fontana, California. We, over the next few weeks, are going to be recording our worship services and turning them into a podcast to see if we can spread the word of God in other ways other than the traditional means. There are many new and inventive ways of getting a voice heard, and we pray that the voice of God reaches you through the many teachings you'll hear throughout this podcast. And so, with all that said and done, I give you Pastor Chris... In the book of James. The food was fit for a king, literally. With the music playing in the background and with his servants finishing up the last final details, the wedding party was set, the wedding party was ready. There was just one problem there were no guests. So the king is looking around and he calls his servants and he says, Go out and reinvite everybody that I initially invited and bring them to my wedding feast or my son's wedding banquet. And so the guys go out and they go and reinvite all the Jewish people that were initially supposed to be there. But what were their responses? Some brushed the guys off Others, they said, well, we have business to do. We can't go and attend this party. And then even some still, they beat some of the king's servants and even killed them. And when the king heard that, he was furious. And so the king sends out more servants and he says, forget those people. Those people that denied me, those people that didn't want to come and party with us and celebrate my son, we're going to send invitations out to anybody and everyone who will come. And so the servants go out to the highways, the servants go out to the byways, and they go get evil people, and they go get good people, and they go get rich and poor, and they go and get Jew and Gentile, and they bring in anybody who would come. Now that story is a parable that Jesus taught, and it's a, it's a beautiful story, and in it, we get to see God's heart. You see, God is the king, and his heart is one of openness. His heart is one of impartiality. You see, anybody that would come to the feast is welcome to come. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, doesn't matter if you're black or white, doesn't matter if you're male or female, if you're dumb or smart, it just doesn't matter. If you accept the invitation, God will let you in. There's impartiality with God. In other words, God shows no favoritism. Now, I bring that up because we are now in test number four in James's book. If you remember, James writes 13 tests to try against your faith to see if you're truly born again or not. So if you have your number two pencil in your Scantron, open up to James chapter two, and we're going to look at test number four. Does anybody remember the first three tests there in chapter one? Now, if Renee was here, she'd be looking at her notes. Does anybody else remember? So we have test number one, count it all what? Joy, when... You encounter various trials. So test number one, if you have genuine, pure faith, is how you overcome trials and tribulations in life. Then test number two is how you overcome temptations. Then test number three, Pastor Brian taught last week, are you a doer of the word? And then test number four is this week, do you show bias or do you show favoritism? Or are you partial to some people and not others? That's really the gist of today's message. And all of us, to some extent, love some people more than we love others. But James is going to tell us today that favoritism, number one, verses one through seven, is foolish. And number two, verses eight through 13 favoritism is serious in the eyes of God. And we'll see why. So turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to James chapter two. And we're going to look at test number four. And the test is are you partial? Or do you show favoritism to some and not to others? So James chapter two, starting at verse one, my brethren. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So here's our command, or here's our principle for test number four. And the principle is this. If you are a Christian, don't show personal favoritism. If you're a Christian, don't show personal favoritism. And the whole point what James is trying to, to say is this. If you place your faith in Christ, it's for a purpose. It's for a reason. So, Pastor over there in the back corner, what's the whole purpose of God calling you? What's the whole pers- purpose of us being Christians? So we can become holy like God. So we can be perfect like God. We can be spiritually mature. The the Bible says First Thessalonians four three. This is God's will for you. Now, does anybody ever wonder what God's will is for my life? You can raise your hand. I still wonder what in the world God's will is for my life. Well, the Bible tells you God's will for your life, 1 Thessalonians 4 3 is this that, that you would be sanctified Amen. or you would become spiritually mature. That's Amen. the purpose. That's what God's purpose is for you, your growth so that you would become like Jesus. Amen. Now, this is what James is saying. If you place your faith in Christ and your purpose is to be like Christ, in fact, the title Christian means little Christ. We are to be little replicas of him. Amen. Then you, how can you show favoritism? Because when we look at God our Father and we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, we see that they are impartial. In Deuteronomy 10, 17, it says, God shows no favoritism. God shows no favoritism. Do you remember Acts 10 many years ago when we were preaching there? You can just lie to me and say yes. In Acts 10, there Peter's preaching, and he's preaching to Gentiles, which is completely out of the norm for Peter. In fact, Peter didn't even want to eat with the Gentiles. So Peter is now preaching to a guy, Cornelius, and his family, and they get saved, and the Spirit of God falls on them, and they glorify God in tongues, and Peter's astonished by this, and he says this in Acts 10.34, now I know God doesn't show favoritism. Now I know that God doesn't say, hey, black people are better than white, or or rich people are better than poor, or men are better than women. Now I know that God shows absolutely no favoritism. When we go to Romans chapter two, verse nine through 11, this is what Paul writes. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Paul wrote to the Galatians and he says, it doesn't matter if you're a slave or if you're a free man. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, any race. It doesn't matter if you're a male or you're a female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. So there's no partiality when it comes to God. Then we look at Jesus' genealogy, and this is like the biggest thing. You look at Jesus' genealogy, and in his genealogy, there are the rich, like kings, like David, and there are the poorest of the poor. There are adulterers and there are faithful people. There are prostitutes and there are harlots. There are Jews and then there's a Gentile by the name of Ruth, a woman who was poor and a Moabite. In other words, God, even in Christ's genealogy, showed no favoritism. Then we look at Jesus, the one in whom we are trying to be like, the one in whom we are trying to replicate. And you see the life of Christ. When he went to the woman at the well there in Samaria, She was shocked. Why was she shocked when Jesus started talking to her? What did she say in John 4? What in the world does a Jewish male have to do with me? Why in the world are you talking to me? In our culture, you're way up there, and I'm a nobody. And on top of that, I've had six husbands. I'm in major sin. What in the world is this rabbi, this teacher, ever wanting to do with me? See, she saw herself in the light of what her culture told her she was. And the Bible says that God shows no favoritism. So James' point or principle is this. How can you say you want to be like Jesus and yet you're racist? How can you say you want to be like Jesus but you're a bigot? How can you say you want to be like Jesus but you're a sexist? How can you say you want to be like Jesus but you defile and you abuse the poor in favor of the rich? And then, so James is saying, if you want to be like Jesus, you have to be impartial. And then James gives us an illustration in verses 2 and 3. And he's specifically now talking about the rich and the poor. But I don't think it just stays there. I think you can expand it even beyond there. But he goes to this area of the rich and the poor, verse 2 and 3. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you, sit in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you go stand over there, or you sit down and be my footstool. In other words, you get on all fours and you let me put my feet on your back. So James is saying if there's a rich person And the Bible says literally, who has golden fingers. That's literally the the term, golden fingers. So think of a person, we've all seen them, right? They look like pimps and they got all the gold rings or the infinity stones all draped on them, right? If there's somebody who comes in with very flashy clothing, wearing a whole bunch of bling and ice, and they're decked out head to toe. They're worth a million bucks. Maybe she's wearing uh, red bottoms and and a $20,000 purse. And you see her or him and you say, man, they're so rich, they can probably pay our tithes for a year. Let's make sure that we give them special attention. Let's bless them on top of it. And then a poor man follows a beggar right after. And you say, you go, you smell, you go sit in a corner where you're not going to bother anybody. James says that's absolutely wrong. And he gives us three reasons why in verse four and verse five and in verse six, three reasons why favoritism is so foolish. He says in verse four, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? So the reason why, number one, favoritism is so foolish is because our judgments are oftentimes impure and our judgments on other people, we don't know the full story, right? It's the whole concept of judging a book by what? It's cover. You, you look at someone, and you say, I got them figured out, but you have absolutely no idea. In fact, the Bible says, man looks on what? The outward appearance, right? So if you see the same pastor preaching a black t-shirt and blue jeans every single month, you might think the guy might be homeless, right? We look at the, we look at the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, And so James is saying, don't you dare judge someone. Don't you dare uh, look at someone and say, this is the box that I'm gonna put them in simply because of our personal judgment or our personal, um, I guess, prejudice upon another person. Our judgments are foolish. Our judgments are folly. We're gonna, I'm gonna ask a question. You don't have to say it out loud, but you can just be real. If you knew a beggar, Maybe he was your neighbor. Maybe he lived across the street. Maybe he was a guy that always was digging in your trash cans. You knew someone, a beggar, and you also knew a billionaire. Let's say Bill Gates. Who would you personally engage with, talk to, be more friendly with? Would you do it with the beggar or would you do it with the billionaire? I hate kids, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Jeff Bezos, any billionaire, a hypothetical billionaire, doesn't matter. Who would you honestly treat better? Probably the billionaire, and then let's go to the root cause of that, why? (laughs) He's a billionaire, but what does that mean to you? Maybe he'll hook you up, right? Maybe she'll write you a check. Maybe there's something in it for you, and that's what James is trying to say. We typically show favoritism because of our impure motives. We always want something out of the deal, and when it comes to the poor, what do we have to do? We have to give out. When it comes to the rich, what do we want? We want to take in. And so James is saying, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't show favoritism. Don't judge people because our judgments are often wrong. Perfect example was when I was working at Wayne Rubel Middle School. It was about 2010, 2011. I had just been saved, and there was an African-American gentleman, probably mid to late 70s, and every night, 9 p.m., Monday through Friday, he would drive up in his 1970 truck, an old, beat-up, blue, just hunk of junk. He would drive up, he would get his little old step stool ladder. He would dress in in the same sweater, was oftentimes really dirty, ripped jeans. He would put a headband on around his head that had a little flashlight, and he would go dumpster diving in all the the dumpsters in all the schools in North Fontana. His name was Joe. So one day I approached Joe, and I'm just talking to him. In my mind, I'm like, this guy's homeless. Poor man, he's old. And the poor guy is old. He has no reason to be dumpster diving. And he's probably made horrible choices in his life. All these things, right, that you assume. So I get to talking to Joe. I wanted to help him. I wanted to bless him. Next thing I know, Joe says, oh, I do all of this. I, I collect all this recycling because I donate every penny to my church, which kind of caught me by surprise. He said, you, about 80 years old, you're jumped, jumping through dumpsters to collect for your church. What about you? What's going on in your life? Well, it turns out that this man worked for the steel mill for 40-something years, and he saved every penny. And every time he saved enough, he would buy land, and he would buy land, and he would buy land. And it turns out that Joe owns or owned most of the land here in Fontana from baseline up. So where Wayne Rubel Middle School, where we were talking, he owned that land that he sold to the school district. Sierra Lakes, where the Costco is and all, he owned all of that. The Summit High School and and all these other, A.B. Miller, he owned all of that. In fact, most of this area around here probably was owned by Joe. So you look at this guy, this homeless old man that's probably made tons of mistakes and he has no idea what he's doing and he's helpless and he's hopeless. Imagine if I would have went to him and I would have spouted off at the mouth. I would have said, get out of here, you bum, you know how dumb would I have looked, right? How absolutely foolish would I have looked? And so James's point is this, don't judge a book by its cover because your judgments are oftentimes wrong. Here's the second reason why favoritism is foolish. We see it in verse five. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. Here's James's point. It's so logical. Why would you choose the rich when God chose the poor? If you're in Christ and you want to be like Jesus, and, and the Father and the, the Son chose the, the foolish and the poor of the world to confound the wise, then why would you side with the rich? Where is your validation or where, where is your... Um, I don't know what the word is evidence, I guess, to side with someone who, is, uh, who God has not sided with. And so verse five, we see God has chosen the poor. Now, when we think of the, the Lord, we see throughout scriptures how much God loves the poor. You cannot escape it. The Bible says that God is the defender of the poor, that God is the provider of the poor, that God is their hope. And when we go to Israel and we see God's welfare system, you see how much God took care of those who had nothing. For example, if a poor person wanted to get right with God and have their sin atoned for, but they don't have money for a lamb, they have one of two choices. They either go steal the lamb or go do something in order to get that money, which is not what God wanted, or they don't partake at all, which is what God didn't want. So God made a provision for them. If you're poor, you don't have to bring a lamb. What can you bring? A pigeon or a turtle dove, something cheap, something that the poor could afford. Then you look at how God set up his government. Every seven years, the poor's debt would be wiped away. So, for example, I'm a poor man, and I go to Greg, and I say, Greg, I need 100 bucks. I need to eat and feed my family for the next two weeks. I'll be in service to you. I'll be indentured to you. I'll do whatever you want, but I need money. Now, Greg gives me the money, and I start working for him. After seven years, though, that debt is completely wiped away, and Greg and I are completely free and clear. Then you say, well, what about Greg? He got the short end of the stick, and God made a provision for the rich. If you lend to the poor, you're lending to God, and God will pay back. So the rich and the poor, God is taking care of equally and fairly. Then and let's say you and I, we owned a, uh, a harvest, a field. And so we're out in the fields and we're picking and I drop a piece of corn on the floor. God said, if you drop that food on the floor, you leave it. It could be the best head of corn you've ever seen. You leave it. That is for the poor. And so the poor would come behind you and they would be able to work for their food. God said also, if you owned a field, don't harvest the corners. That's for the poor. So you leave the harvest alone. Then you go through it one time. You have one shot. Get as much harvest as you can. Anything else, you leave, and the poor can come behind you and eat the rest of your harvest. So that was God's way to show that the, the poor can, will never be forgotten by God. And so James is saying if God has chosen them and provided for them and helped them, and, and heaven is going to be populated with a whole bunch of poor people, why in the world are you siding with the rich? Why are you so singularly focused on what you can get from them? Now, let me just stop and say this. Not all poor people are going to heaven, and not all rich people are going to hell. These are general statements. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, King David and King Solomon, Lydia in Acts 16, the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, they were all saved, but they were all very rich. So it doesn't mean that rich people can't go to heaven. It doesn't mean poor people are automatically going to heaven. But what it does mean is this, that if you're poor, you're more open to God. And you're more humbled and you're more willing to accept what God has for you. If you're rich, there's a tendency that you become your own God because your wealth, your empire can sustain all your different needs. And so James is saying, don't side with the rich, for God has chosen the poor. And the third reason why favoritism is foolish is in verse 6 uh, through 7, and it's because the rich tend to blaspheme God. So why would you go on their side? Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not writ the rich who will press you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? So if you look at all of world history, the same is true. The rich have always oppressed the poor. It's always been in this world an issue between those who have and those who have not. In our culture today, we have the poor class. We have our our vanishing middle class. Then we have our upper class, and then we have the elite. When you go somewhere like in India, for example, the class system is even more intense. This um, segregation or this, um, what is the other word, discrimination of the poor is on a whole new level. So if you're born in the top class, you have the entire world on a silver platter. I mean, think Taj Mahal kind of rich. But if you were born in the bottom class, chances are you will die in the slums that you were born in. So you have kids going through feces to pull out little pieces of corn to eat. Um, There was a newspaper where there were children drinking from a pregnant dog so they can have milk. I mean, we're talking the poor of the poor, and it was because they were born into a certain class. And so when you're rich, typically you tend to blaspheme God. If you were born into that, then you tend to figure out that you've got it all made and that you absolutely don't need anything at all. Now, I think James particularly is referring to the Sadducees. Remember, who is James's audience? Who's he initially writing to? It's there in verse 1, chapter 1. There were Jews, right? There were Jews who were from Jerusalem, they were very, very, very into the law of Moses, and then God grabbed a hold of their heart, and Jesus became Messiah. So culturally, ethically, they're Jewish by nature, but they are also Christians. And so James is writing them, and he says, why are you siding with the rich people? They're the same ones who dragged you into court. They were the same ones who persecuted you and made you flee Jerusalem. These are the same people that wanted to cause you harm. And because they may throw you a couple bucks, now you're on their team. And these are the same people who blasphemed the God in which you were called. So James is saying that's absolutely horrific thought. Now, the Sadducees, they were a sect of... Israel. They were a religious sect. They were uh, priests, but they were corrupt to the absolute core. Think of the Sadducees more as politicians than religious priests, because that's what they were. They were in bed with Rome. They completely controlled the, the temple uh, sacrificial system and they upcharged and they upsold and they, they changed their currency so that they can make tons and tons and tons of money. They were literally bleeding God's people dry so that they can be filthy rich. And they use that money to oppress anybody who was not in their court. For example, they used 30 pieces of silver to give to a guy named Judas so that Judas can betray Jesus. It was their power and money and their influence that caused their Messiah to be hung on a cross. It was the same people who persecuted James and John in Acts 3, who killed Stephen in Acts 7, who caused these people to have to be dispersed from their homes and everything they knew as children because these people oppressed them because now they can no longer get their money from the temple. And so they were wicked people. And James is saying, why in the world would you side with these people when all they do is blaspheme God? So three reasons why favoritism is foolish. Number one, verse four. Anybody remember? Good. Number two, verse five. Anybody remember? (laughs) Fantastic. Anybody remember the last one? (laughs) All right. So favoritism is foolish because, right, our poor judgment or our evil motives. When we judge it awfully oftentimes comes from a selfish place. Therefore, don't show favoritism because you're probably going to be wrong. Number 2, verse 5, don't choose the rich because God chose the poor. And then number uh, 3, 6 and 7, don't side with the rich because they're the people that oppress and blaspheme God. And again, number verse 1, your faith is in Christ. And the mission of your life is to be like him. And do you see him siding with the rich? Do you see him uh, siding with those who blaspheme God? The answer is unequivocally, no, not a chance. So James says, if you're like Jesus, you will not show favoritism. Then verses 8 through 13, he he tells us why favoritism is foul fruit. Or in other words, favoritism is a very serious offense in the eyes of God. Verse 8. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So James is writing to a church or a group of people and just like any church or any assembly, any group of people, there are always those who are truly saved and those who aren't. And that's why he's writing this letter, to test their faith. So they're either champs or they're chumps. They're either the saints or they're the ain'ts, right? So Paul or Paul or James is writing these people, and he says, those who are in the faith, this is what you're doing, verse 8. If, and it's a first conditional clause, which just means that it makes this a, a statement of truth. So rather than if, it could read since. Since, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So again, what's the purpose of us as Christians? To be like Jesus, right? Spiritual maturity. How can we be like Jesus by fulfilling the royal law? And so James is saying, those who are loving their neighbors as their selves, they are doing good. Because if you truly love your neighbor as yourself, what you're not doing is showing favoritism. What you're not doing is showing partiality. What you're not doing is loving some and ultimately hating others. So James says, the key to not fulfilling favoritism is by fulfilling God's royal law, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in order for you to to understand this, for us to understand it, this law has two parts. Number one, the Bible assumes you already love yourself. And then in the degree in which you love yourself, then you love people in that same manner. Now, except for a very small percentage of people that truly don't love themselves and ultimately take their lives, pretty much everybody else, which is I would say 98, 99% of people love themselves. Look at how much money you spend on food, on clothing, on makeup, on supplements to get you big and buff, on supplements to get you thin and skinny, you know, on supplements like anti-aging, right? We spend a million dollars on anti-aging, right? Everything we do is because we love ourselves. Whose teeth do you brush at night, right? Whose hair do you brush in the morning? What face are you applying makeup to? Right, we love ourselves. Here's another uh, a great test if if we love ourselves or not. How do you determine? How do you determine if a group photo is good or not? <laughs> right, there could be a group of six people, in, and five out of the six look absolutely amazing. Just the smiles are on point. You have the right angle, the right side of the face, the right lighting. The filters are going on perfectly, and everybody looks good except you. What's your determination about that photo? <laughs> Horrible. It's trash, right? Cut me out of it. It's, we got to take another one. Everybody else saying no, it looks amazing, right? Because they look amazing. It's because we love ourselves. And so the royal law is this. You love yourself and you are to love your neighbor in the exact same way. And so here's something that convicted me. When you're hungry, what do you do? You eat. But what do you eat? Whatever you want. You eat whatever you want because that's your craving, that's your desire, that's what you want. To love your neighbor as yourself is to love someone in that same way. So when you see someone hungry, what do you do? Maybe, or maybe you look the other way. Maybe you justify it and say that person's just going to go buy a bunch of drugs anyway. Or maybe you throw them, you know, a, a, something that you would never put in your own mouth. But do we really love to the extent that we love ourselves? When you're cold, what do you do? Cover up. up. So I I go, you know, and I get the CK jacket or I get the wonderful Pico or whatever the case may be. I get it. It fits nice. It feels great. But when I see other people cold, what do we do? Do we just turn the other way or do we even, do we give them something or do we love them to the extent that we love ourselves? Will we put the clothes that we wear on their backs or not? When you're cold and you're tired and it's raining outside and you want to get out of the elements, what do you do? You go home, right? You put on the fire, you make hot chocolate, you put your feet up, you get in a nice robe. But when you see other people cold and tired, do you love them to the extent that you love yourself? And so the royal law of God is this, love your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Now, Jesus was asked the question, who is my neighbor, right? Is my neighbor 263 East 44th Street, 282 East 44th Street, 260 East 44th Street? Who's my neighbor? And so Jesus tells a story. And he says there was a guy, he was going from Jerusalem up to Jericho, and he got jumped, he got beat up, he got robbed, and he was just left there for dead. And here there was a priest, of all people, a godly person. Surely he's going to love on this guy. The priest sees this guy beat up, and he goes on the other side of the street, minds his own business. The second guy, a Levite, another uh, from the priestly line, another person that should absolutely be there to, to help. He sees this guy, goes on the other side of the street, and just keeps on walking. Then a Samaritan who he himself has been discriminated his entire life sees a guy beat up and he goes and he helps his wounds and he helps this man and he takes him to a motel and he says, I will pay for every bit of this guy's expense. Just you make sure that he's taken care of. And Jesus said, who, who was the one or who is your neighbor? And essentially what he said is this, anybody in your path that needs help, or in need of mercy is now your neighbor. That could be the, the person at the stop sign. That could be the guy at the traffic light. That could be the person that just rear-ended you that doesn't have insurance, right? That could be anybody whomever. <laughs> That's the first time I saw Jacqueline say, <laughs> first time in church I saw her say amen. Amen. <laughs> it could be anybody in need. That's your neighbor. And so the royal law is this, love them to the extent that you love yourself. But James goes on and he shows the seriousness of favoritism. Verse 9 through 11. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What James' point is this. If you mess up on one part of the law, you messed up the whole thing. And favoritism causes sin. How does favoritism cause sin? Favoritism is the Siamese twin of hatred or favoritism is the Siamese twin of discrimination and this is this is how I explain it if I go over here and I love these people with everything I got what happens to all these people over here just by definition they're neglected right look at Nazi Germany one group of people was highly favored what happened to everybody else in that society right by just by definition If you have favoritism, you are discriminating on someone else. And so James says, that right there is not following the law of love. That's not loving your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, you're guilty of everything. You can't justify and say, well, I don't commit murder. Well, I I give my tithes and offerings. Well, I show up to church. James is saying, no, it doesn't matter. You violate a little, you are violating everything. Now, this idea of the law, do we understand what it is? I know if you didn't grow up in a Jewish culture or you didn't grow up in a church that doesn't teach you or you read your Bible and you don't understand it, this idea of the law is like weird. So I'll just briefly what the law is. The law is nothing more than God's house rules. Just don't make it more complicated than that. The law is nothing more than God's house rules. When you were growing up, your job was to get good grades, come home, clean the house, do your chores, whatever the case may be. Those were the house rules. What happened when you kept them? Either that or you didn't get beat. What happened, right? It was one of the two. What happens when you You didn't keep house rules? You're not sitting down for a week, right? You're you're just going to kind of like be very, very uncomfortable. And that's because there are set rules, and those rules are meant to be kept. So when God came to Moses, there were 613 rules, but there was one law. There was the law. It's one singular unit, but the law had 613 compartments to it. And God said, if you, if you are, are, want to complete my will, then you just have to follow my house rules and everything's going to be okay. All 613 of them. Then David comes along. And you can read this on your own, Psalm 15. David takes 613 commandments, and he distills it down to 11. And he says, if you do these 11, you are fulfilling God's house rules. Then Isaiah comes, and he takes the 11, and he distills it down to 6. Then Micah comes, and he takes uh, Isaiah 6, which is all of God's house rules, and he makes it into 3. Do what is right. Love mercy while humbly with your God. You are fulfilling God's house rules. Then Jesus comes and he takes the three from Micah and he distills it to two. Love God, love people, all the law and the prophets, God's house rules hangs on this very thing. So what James is saying is this. If you show favoritism, you're breaking one of the rules. And if you're breaking one of the rules, you've broken the whole thing. You're guilty of all. So one way to think of it is think of a, a stained glass window. You've been to a cathedral, a basilica, a beautiful old church. You've seen one of those stained glass windows, right? They're beautiful, just like God's law. It's perfect, just like God's law. It tells a story, just like God's law. It's made of many components, yet it's one singular window, just like God's law, if you will. But what happens if me being a sinner takes a baseball and I throw it as hard as I could right at that window? What happens to that window? It breaks. Now, does it matter if I throw it in the middle? Does it matter if I throw it in the corner? Does it matter if I throw it in the top or the bottom? Not at all. If I break one part of it, the whole thing's broken. And that's what James is trying to say. When you show favoritism, it's serious because you are violating God's law of loving others. And when you violate God's law of loving others, you violated everything. And then verse 12 and 13, it's James' appeal. In verse 12, he says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, which is another uh, way of saying by the royal law or loving your neighbor as yourself. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So there are three reasons, and I'll do this very quickly, why favoritism produces foul fruit. Number one, because it's sin. And when you favor others, you're violating all the entirety of God's law because you love some and you will ultimately hate others. And God called us to what? Love whom? God and love people. So that's number one. Number two, it produces foul fruit because naturally when you love some, you'll hate others. There's natural discrimination built in. And then thirdly, there's judgment. Verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God will judge those who are unloving and those who show favoritism. So I just want to close with just this. How can we not be biased? It's natural. We are tribal people. We are. From the very beginning, we're tribal people. Whether it's We're united under one flag, or we're united under the same language, or we're united under the same skin color, or the same gender, or whatever. We're tribal people. And inerrantly, we love our own, and we tend to not like others in the same way. So how can you and I not be biased, not show partiality, not show favoritism? That's exactly it. You want to view God's view of people, not your own. So we're shaped by our own personal experience and our own culture. That's how we are formed and molded and shaped. I have a brother in the Lord. He's a dear brother. He loves God richly. But when it comes to African-American men, I can tell there's a lot of angst in his heart. Something's not right. He doesn't really have a very high regard or a love for black males. So you start talking to him, I start talking to him, and it turns out that when he was in high school, he was jumped by four or five of them, and he, from that point on, has just always held this grudge inside his heart. There's a, there's a hatred there, a, a favoritism there, a, a seed of racism there. He loves the Lord, but he's battling that because of his own personal experience. I have a sister in the Lord who... Uh, is so pro-feminism, so pro-women, so pro-women's rights and women's movement, and she's not very fond of men. Turns out that is because when she was three, four, five years old, she was sexually molested by males, particularly those in her family. So her personal experiences have shaped her own biases and favoritism. When we look at our culture, and for example, like homeless people, we look at the homeless, and there's a stigma. They're all drunkards. They're all uh, high. They're all lazy. They're all worthless. They, they do nothing, and, and they have the audacity to ask me for my money. Right? That's culture's way of really identifying homeless people. So in order for us to change that, we have to look at how people are through God's eyes. Every man, woman, and child was created one in the image of God, in his likeness to serve his purpose. The Bible says that in heaven, there will be people from every tribe and every tongue worshiping God. There's men, there's women in Scripture who glorify God. So whatever your, your um, prejudice may be, whatever, whether it's racism or sexism or against rich or poor or against anybody, The people down south, because they're coming and taking all our jobs, or whatever the case may be, you have to check yourself before you wreck yourself. Then you go into scripture, and then you view people in the sight of God. And we know what? That God shows no favoritism, he shows no partiality, and God is love. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the time in which we get to jump in your word and just study from you, Lord. I pray, God, that this message was clear and concise and that bigotry and racism and uh, ill-treating of other people because of what they don't have or what they may have is not right, it's not godly, it's not Christian. And so, Father, for any areas in our life where we struggle with this, they're for me or against me, or it's us versus them, I pray, God, that we would humble ourselves, I pray, Father, that we would go to Scripture and see every human being in the way that you see them. And that we know, Lord God, that favoritism is not the way to go, that it is sin, and that we violate your beautiful law. So, Father, help us to be like you. Help us to walk how you walk. Help us to love you and love people. In Jesus' name. Amen.